The Douglas DC-10 was dealt a deadly blow to its name soon after its introduction into service. What catastrophic failure caused the DC-10 so much grief? If you're searching for a podcast about crime relating to actual life events of military personnel, veterans, family members, and those associated with the military in any way, then we know the podcast for you. The Military True Crime Addict podcast explores a plethora of true crime stories that have not been reported on by news outlets or media, stories that, upon hearing, you will be astounded by. History on these cases should have been told and reported on long ago. There are detailed stories that touch on topics such as assault, harassment, sexual preference, abuse of power, murder, hazing, rape, and all the stories that in some way relate to our military veterans and their extended families. Also, there are episodes on serial killers with military backgrounds that you will also not believe. On the Military True Crime Attic podcast, the host David provides a voice to the victims and a chance to hear their side of this story. He wants to raise awareness of the heinous crimes and those most impacted by those crimes. You do not need to know anything about the military to enjoy this podcast. You can hear original true crime stories with the specifics of what occurred. So make sure to check out the Military True Crime Addict podcast on your favorite podcast app now. Again, check out the Military True Crime Addict podcast now where you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow them on Facebook at Military True Crime Addict or go to their website, MilitaryTrueCrimeAddict.com. Welcome back to the Hard Landings podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. And this is the second time we're recording today. <laughs> it is. It's a lot today. Unbeknownst lot. to you people. Since there's nothing else I can think of that we need to talk about. Quick <laughs> reminder that uh, April's listener stories are rainy events. Tell us your rainy stories. I have a couple. I of, do. Of things that happened while it was raining. Could be yes. in the airport. Could be in the air. Things Could be not. I don't know. Or just tell us a story. I don't know. We like stories. Yeah. They don't, it doesn't have to be to the theme. And I, th- I think that's it for right now. At least mm-hmm. for now. Yep. So what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering American Airlines Flight 96. So... Thank you to Chris, our patron, for recommending this episode. That. Yes. Thank you for recommending that. Thanks, Chris. This occurred on June the 12th of 1972. This was a Douglas DC-10. Ten. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you said deathless for a second. What? what? I went, that's not no. an airport. Douglas DC-10. Hey, Douglas DC-10. Got We're it. finally talking about the infamous DC-10 problem. Not the UA-232 problem. The problem. We'll get there. This airplane had the tail number of November 103 Alpha Alpha for American Airlines. Ah, Yes, makes sense. This was kind of their queen airplane for a long period of time. The DC-10 and American Airlines have a very close tied history together. Because American... Originally, American was going to buy the L-1011. But Lockheed was taking so long to produce the actually very well-engineered airplane. And Douglas, on the other hand, was producing their trijet, their big giant wide-body trijet much faster, and they got it to service much faster in the L-1011, so American switched all of their orders over to the DC-10 because American had challenged these manufacturers to make such airplane. So American Airlines is kind of partially to blame for why the DC-10 was also kind of rushed to service and why it had some problems. So we'll get into that. This flight was to be from Los Angeles International Airport in California to LaGuardia, in New York, with a stopover in Detroit and in Buffalo. Buffalo? Buffalo. We'll be talking about the Detroit to Buffalo leg, which is not a very long leg, actually. <laughs> but we're going to be talking about that leg. The captain was Bryce McCormick. He was 52 years old. He had 24,048 hours total, so one of the more experienced pilots we've ever talked about. However, he only had 56 hours on the type. Why? The DC-10 was new. It was a very new oh, airplane. Yeah, that makes sense. You'll find that is pretty similar with the other two crew members. The first officer was Peter Whitney. He was 34 years old. He had 7,947 hours. He had 75 hours on the DC-10. 
The flight engineer was Clayton Burke. He had he was 50 years old. He had 13,898 hours total, of which 45 hours on the type. So none of them even had 100 hours on the type. That's how new it was. Hmm. Which is, so this is one of the more experienced overall in total crews we've ever talked about. But one of the least experienced crews on the type. Interesting. Yeah. The flight was to have 11 crew members and 56 passengers for the trip to Buffalo. Now, mind you, that is very few people for a very large airplane. Uh, American Airlines coined the airplane as the luxury liner. It was to be their ultra-luxurious airplane. It had lounges and nice big seats. It was supposed to be comfortable, entertainment, you know, everything. Like, it was It was a nice big airplane for them. But this airplane was flying mostly empty. At least for the leg we we're talking about. The flight departed LAX at 11.36 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 46 minutes behind schedule due to passenger handling and air traffic control issues. The flight to Detroit was uneventful, and the flight arrived at 6.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, yes, time changes and everything means you lose a lot of a day. Fuel and cargo and passengers were loaded at Detroit. And the takeoff weight was calculated at 300,888 pounds for the gross weight for the aircraft on takeoff from Detroit. From Detroit, There was a mechanical issue that caused a slight delay in departing. A mechanic came to the airplane, helped correct the issue, then cleared the flight to depart. The flight departed the ramp at 7.11 p.m. The flight was cleared for takeoff on runway 3 right. Where are they now? Detroit. Okay. Heading for Buffalo. Clear for takeoff on 3 right and took off at 7.20 p.m. The first officer was the pilot flying for this leg and the captain was the pilot monitoring. The flight was instructed to maintain runway heading and contact the departure controller by the tower controller. The departure controller then cleared the flight to climb to 6,000 feet and vectored them to the airways for their flight. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to continue climbing to flight level 210 or 21,000 feet and to contact Cleveland Air Route Traffic Control Center. At 7.25 p.m., the airplane was climbing through 11,750 feet at 260 knots when an enormous bang was heard in the cockpit and felt. At the same moment, a large amount of dust and dirt flew up into the faces of the pilots, and the rudder pedals moved full left suddenly. What? Yeah, so a lot of things are happening all at once. I don't understand about the dirt thing. Like, uh, yes, so we'll we'll talk about this because they don't talk about it much actually in the report, but we'll talk about this in a little bit. I'll talk about it because there's there's a very very easy explanation about what's happening here. Okay, that's here. good. <laughs> yes. All three engine thrust levers were then reduced to idle, and the airplane yawed heavily right. Can you explain yaw real quick to our listeners yes, so, who are brand new? So yaw typically is associated with the rudder or the vertical. Uh, tailplane so it is it controls the airplane's horizontal left to right movement it's not the tilt it's not the you know the rotation on the uh which axis would that be it's not Why? roll it's not pitch right it's not roll it's not pitch it is it's like if you were to turn left or right in a car right exactly you don't roll the car to do that right it just turns it's the same motion in an airplane that is yaw so it began yawing heavily to the right. The captain mentioned that he lost his vision briefly, and he wasn't sure what had happened. He thought that there was a potential mid-air collision and that the windshield had been lost. Oh, jeez. That, that's to give you a little bit of an idea of the gravity of what was happening in the airplane all at once. What flight level were they at? They were low. They were at 11,000 feet. Okay. So, again, we'll talk about what's really going on here. In a little while, because there is a really easy explanation for this. The captain immediately disengaged the autopilot and took manual control of the airplane. The number one and the number three engines responded to power application, but the number two engine in the tail, because this is a tri-engine, so one on each wing and then one in the tail. The one in the tail, the thrust lever was not able to be moved. That's great. Uh-huh. Slightly terrifying. Yes, Airspeed was, however, stabilized at 250 knots, which is pretty good. The aileron response was normal, but the elevator response... So the aileron response controls roll. Elevator response controls pitch. The elevator response was very sluggish, so they were not able to control their pitch up and down very well. 
In order to maintain directional control of the airplane, the left aileron had to be applied continuously to account for that heavy, heavy right yaw. Why? The rudder was not responsive at all, which had the airplane stuck in a right yaw. So the rudder pedals literally weren't working, and the rudder was stuck to the right. The captain declared an emergency to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to return back to Detroit with vectors for approach. When the loud thud had occurred, a fog was observed in the cabin, along with a movement of air felt in the cabin. Again, we'll talk about what's going on here. The rear cabin floor in the aft lounge area of the DC-10 had fallen downward, with some collapsing fully into the cargo compartment. The floor in the cabin had fallen into the, the cargo, cargo compartment. The floor? The floor. The passenger cabin had fallen into the cargo compartment. Did the seats fall? Yes, there were some seats that fell. Ooh. But no passengers were seated in the area. Oh, because it's relatively empty. Exactly. I However, see. two cabin crew were in their seats by the aft exits, and they were thrown to the floor and were injured, minorly, mm. but they were injured. Passengers were then briefed to prepare for an emergency landing. The air traffic controller vectored the flight to line up for an approach using the instrument landing system for runway 03 left. They used right for takeoff, using left for landing at Detroit. The captain requested a long final approach, so the air traffic controller planned for a 20 nautical mile localizer course intercept. So, lots of distance. However, mind you, they never got far away from the airport. The crew initiated a slow descent. During that time, the number two engine power was able to be reduced, finally. So that was good news. So they reduced it to idle, and then they left it there, knowing that it wasn't very responsive. From that time on, the number one and the number three engines were used for power control, as well as to assist with pitching the aircraft upward, since they didn't have a whole lot of elevator control. If you just put in a little more thrust, the airplane is more likely to nose up. The captain opted not to dump fuel, as they did not know the extent of the damage to the aircraft, and they didn't want to cause anything terrible to happen. Yeah, that's smart. Initially, the aircraft was approaching at 150 knots, with an 800 foot per second descent, so pretty stabilized. The landing gear was extended, and the flaps were extended to 35 degrees, which increased the descent rate to 1,500 foot per second, briefly, before thrust was then applied, and the airplane returned to an 800 foot per second descent. So... They lost their, their little bit of uh, stabilization when they added drag to the airplane. Because mm. they were already going pretty slow. And then they managed to get back on a relatively uh, stabilized approach again. The airplane was flown in a very flat attitude for approach versus a typical approach for the DC-10, which is normally pretty nose-up, actually. Yeah, didn't we talk about that when we covered World Airways? Yeah, I think we did. So typically the, the nose of a DC-10 will be pretty high on approach, especially in the DC-10s and some of the older airplanes, because of the way the aerodynamics were built on the airplanes, mm. the nose would be pointed pretty high to the sky versus what they are now. And so it was pretty unusual for this DC-10 to be coming in nearly flat. That's kind of an odd thing, a very odd thing. The flight crew had indications that the gear was down, but the crew was concerned that it was not in fact extended as they were nearing the runway. There was so much going on, basically, around them, and so many things happening that they just weren't confident in anything. Huh. So they weren't even guaranteeing so that their landing gear was They're down. paranoid. They're paranoid about everything, basically. And I don't blame them, because yeah. there is a lot going on. I would be, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're having difficulties controlling the airplane. There was a loud bang. The cockpit's full of dust, dirt, fog. And it's just chaos. It's utter chaos, basically. The captain and the first officer had to use full back pressure on the control column to flare the airplane for landing. So in other words, they were pulled all the way back. The elevator is not responding much, so the airplane's still probably mostly flat, and they're trying to flare the airplane to land. The airplane touched down at Detroit at 7.44 p.m., so only 22 minutes after taking off. The airplane touched down 1,900 feet past the threshold, which is a little far, and it immediately began veering to the right. Hmm, yeah. Remember, the rudder is stuck to the right. The captain applied a reverse thrust to the one and three, the number one and number three engines and maintained full left aileron in order to keep the airplane on the runway, but it continued to veer right off of the runway surface. The first officer then applied full reverse thrust on the number one engine, the left engine, 
and then stopped the reverse thrust on the right engine, which allowed the airplane to actually eventually be steered back toward the runway. That's pretty smart. It was. The airplane came to rest 8,800 feet down the runway, with the left main and the nose landing gear on the runway, and the right main off the right side of the runway, Mm. off of the runway surface in the dirt. The captain ordered an emergency evacuation alarm be activated once the airplane came to a stop. The the evacuation slides were deployed, and the passengers and crew evacuated on the runway. In all, two crew and nine passengers were injured. Most of that actually happened during the evacuation. As it does. Right, the nine passengers. But nine crew and 47 passengers were not injured at all. So, all in all, pretty safe. Nobody died. And the the injuries were all pretty minor. So, this was, overall, not too bad. Okay. So, this investigation was performed by the NTSB, and it was pretty obvious to their team of investigators that the cause of the incident was the in-flight opening and separation of the aft cargo door. Once they arrived, they noticed that the cargo door... Was gone. Was gone. (laughs) It looked something like that. Oh, good Jesus. (laughs) Is this one of those things where the door, like, isn't pressurized? Like, it didn't, it closed from, like, the outside instead of the inside? We're going to talk about it. Does that make sense? (laughs) Well, I know I've I've read something about that, but I didn't know if it was on the DC-10 or not. It was definitely the DC-10. We're going to talk about it. So, look at the plane on the website. The door's gone. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to (laughs) figure out. You know what? No, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on. There's no door. I'm guessing the door probably hit the rudder. Uh, not no, exactly. Actually, oh, okay. no. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, mm-hmm. but it does take time to figure out how and why it opened and separated. These doors closed by hooks on the door latching onto a metal rod in the door frame of the fuselage. Your average car door does the same thing. Yeah, right. essentially, yeah. And then the cargo handlers on the outside push down on a lever which shoves locking pins into the hook mechanism so that they don't move and come undone during the flight. Damage on the plane showed that the hooks were not around the metal rod when the door opened in flight properly, and tests showed that if this was the case, the locking pins couldn't be inserted into the hooks to lock them in place. So how were the cargo handlers able to close the lever? Turns out that this is the reason for the delay in the flight, as they were having difficulty closing the door. Oh. Mm-hmm. Remember well, when I said they were having a mechanical problem? I was going to ask, but I was like, I don't know, maybe it's nothing. Sometimes it's nothing. Most of the time it's nothing. It's something. It was something. Eventually, one cargo handler just put his knee into it to close it. He just pushed down on that lever with his knee, and it closed. NTSB investigators replicated this and found a flaw in the door design. The lever could be closed with a lot of force, we're talking 120 pounds of force, but not actually put the locking mechanisms in place, and there would be no way for the cargo handlers to know that the door wasn't actually closed properly. They're just supposed to assume that when the handle is shut, it is locked. Yep. Something bent internally, and then the lever moved to the closed position. Oh, that's nice. Uh-huh. Um, well, wouldn't the flight crew know that the door is still open? I'm guessing there wasn't any indication. So actually, in the cockpit, there is an indicator similar to your car that shows when a door isn't fully shut. Thank goodness for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, the test that investigators ran showed that the light would turn off when the lever was shoved in, even if it wasn't locked. So it was tied uh... to the lever... And not, not the, the door. Lock. Yeah. Right. Not the locking mechanism. Which is a big problem, as it turns out. Well, obviously. <laughs> then as the airplane climbed, the pressure inside the plane was greater than outside. The stops that are in place on the door to hold that force weren't actually touching the door mechanism because it wasn't closed all the way. That mm-hmm. is supposed to hold all that force. And it's not touching. Oh, well... Because of this, the force that's normally transmitted to that stop was then transmitted to the bolts used to fasten the hooks to the door at the top. Yeah. And just tore it right off. Yep, sheared it off, the hook sprung open, and the door blew out. It took a pressure differential of about 5 PSI to do this. 
Now, I think we've mentioned in the past that there are vents in the floor of the cabin that stay closed unless the cargo hold has a pressurization failure, and then they open to equalize the pressure so that the floor doesn't collapse. Makes sense. What accident happened so that those were required to be implemented? Uh, fun fact, this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was this one. Because the floor collapsed. Yes. Because of the pressure differential that was suddenly created. <laughs> the floor of Flight 96 collapsed when the pressure under it was less than the pressure in the cabin. The floor support structure failed, and the floor contained control cables. Which were then severed. Oh, oh, and then they couldn't move the rudder, and then they, the elevators were all messed up. Okay, I get it. I got it. Now. Got it? Okay. I, got it. I connected the dots. <laughs> Turns See, out the controls it. for the number two engine also run through there. <laughs> well, well, it's in the tail, so it makes sense. Uh-huh. It's a fun time. It was all around... That was a big problem. So the board attributed this failure directly to the lack of pressure relief vents that were already present on many planes. Just not the DC-10. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about that really quick in this pressure differential, because now we have a very simple physics problem, which will explain the one thing I said I will explain. You have a higher pressure inside the airplane than outside the airplane, and suddenly you don't. What do we know about high pressures and low pressures coming together? They equalize and create wind. Yes, wind, condensation... And it also moves air, so all the dust, dirt, anything that was in the cockpit likely got kicked up into their face. Oh. Also, the cabin, the fog effect, was literally the high pressure and low pressure coming together, just like a small storm, a small uh, weather pressure system inside the airplane. Any moisture that was inside the airplane instantly condensated. So the fog they saw inside the cabin was from the high pressure and the low pressure combining instantaneously. It's a great time. When the airplane depressurized. I think our definitions of a great time are a little different. <laughs> no, but I can't even imagine that experience because if you've ever seen actually an airplane take off, it's also a very f simple physics problem when you have the high pressure and the low pressure. When they take off in a very moisturous air moist. location. Yes, a very moist location. You're welcome to all of those who hate that word. Yes. <laughs> that. Whenever they're in like a very humid climate. Florida. Louisiana. Yes. Any of those places. And the dew point tends to be very close to the temperature. When that happens, you'll see the airplanes take off. And both inside the engines, you'll see like very fast like flashes of fog as that pressure changes. And just the same, on top of the wing, you will also see these like almost like flashes of fog over the wing. It's this crazy thing. It's the same experience they had inside the cabin when, the, when this airplane depressurized. Because the dew point was, there was enough moisture in there and the dew point was close enough that... Right conditions, boom, fog in the cabin for probably half a second. Crazy experience. I can't even imagine. Also, so many things are going on that who yeah, cares? Terrifying. Yeah. The fog isn't even the first thing on your mind. No. Trust me. Turns out that there's a lot of stuff wrong with the way the DC-10 was made. And... and and now there's no floor, so... Yeah, the floor fell. We're all freaking on top out. Of that. It's fun. Yes. So we're going to finish out this one, and then we'll take a break. Okay. Because there's more. But wait, there's, there's more. more. So findings. I have narrowed down a handful of these that are relatively important. Uh, this was, like we said, it was yes. the NTSB, but this was early. This was very early. This is 1972 we're talking about. I mean, the NTSB kind of started doing their reports in 1965, 67, yes. somewhere around there. Still, pretty early. This, this report read a lot like a CAB report, though. Oh, yeah, it did. It was very, very short. It was 12 pages. Oh, well. <laughs> yep. Definitely more like a CAB report. It was actually 43, but most of that is were just... Were appendices? No, they were just written out CVR, which oh. didn't really apply to anything anyways. So, yeah, it was really only 12 pages. They found that the aft bulk cargo compartment door opened in flight and separated from the airplane. Okay. There you go. We know that. Did anything get sucked out? Do you know? Uh... Was anything in there? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, there was important things in there. There so, was a coffin. A coffin got sucked out? Oh my god. With a body? What? Uh, Where'd it go? Uh, to the ground. It landed the same place the door did. Yes. Did it break? They were found together. Yeah, and in the Air Disasters episode, they depict a leg just hanging out of the coffin. <laughs> Like, you could have just showed a broken coffin. You didn't have to show a yeah. body. Yeah, yes, it was this one. 
Yeah, a coffin fell out. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But it was found with a door. I guess that's fortunate. So they found both, I guess. I guess I forgot to mention that the door was found. Why do you just make a bad situation so much worse? I feel <laughs> bad. I feel bad for that family. Hold on. It said where. It said how far away that door was found. The door was? Mm-hmm. Not very far, because they didn't get very far. No. They were over Canada, though. They were. Yes, it's known as the on- Windsor incident. Windsor incident. Yeah, you're right. The, Windsor the coffin incident. was found 30 kilometers away, which for our U.S. listeners who don't use the metric I system. think is 18-ish, 19-ish miles. That sounds about right. Yep. They found that the relief vents were not installed between the passenger cabin and the aft bulk cargo compartment to minimize the pressure loading on the cabin floor in the event of a sudden depressurization of the cargo de- compartment. Really important. Like, uh, oh, I don't know how you figured that out, other than the fact that now there was a cargo area, and now there's floor. Yeah, now there's passenger seats in the in cargo, cargo area. <laughs> and they weren't, there, they weren't there like a second ago. They found that the loss of pressure in the cargo compartment created a pressure differential of sufficient magnitude to cause the cabin floor and its supporting structures to fail. It really doesn't take actually much, because when you're talking about a large pressure, pressure vessel... It only takes a very small amount of pressure differential, actually, to cause a lot more damage mm. than when you're talking about a small pressure vessel, where it causes you, you need a much higher pressure differential. Right. They found that the cabin floor displacement and floor beam deformation into the cargo compartment severed some of the cables and severely impaired the operation of others to the number two engine and empennage flight controls. All to say... That compartment area had some really critical things going through it <laughs> that were damaged and hindered the airplane from operating, which turns out really common on the DC-10. Oh, yeah. For it to be crippled by a single problem. Yeah. Eway 232. Yes. If you don't remember, Please go back and listen. The, the very first episode. Just three more findings on this one. They found that the stabilizer trim was available, although the stabilizer indicator was inoperative, and the crew was not aware of that, and they did not use trim for the approach and landing. They had a few other problems. Yeah, they had so many things going on. It it really is actually, it was pretty incredible that they landed without much incident. Right. Because of everything that was going on. They found that a service bulletin to correct this issue uh, about the cargo door latches, there was already one. FYI. Oh, that's nice. They found that a service bulletin to correct this condition was in effect at the time of the accident, but the recommended modification had not been incorporated. However, the service bulletin didn't actually do much. The modification was not great. We'll talk about that more in a bit. They found that the width of the double occupancy emergency slides made it difficult for the evacuees to stabilize their sitting positions during the descent, which caused injuries to them when they reached the bottom of the slide. So all the, the injuries... slides were wide enough for two people? Uh-huh. On the DC-10, there were pretty big doors, too. And, yes, so the the slides were... You, you were able to go down as two people, but, yes, needless to say, that causes more injury. Obviously. Which is why they don't do that anymore. Um, and, two, uh, yes, people get got hurt because they couldn't even just maintain a sitting position all the way down. Like, the slide just was designed so not right that they were just kind of, like, falling over all the way down, and then they would land at the bottom and get hurt. Great. Well. Yes. I'm surprised there weren't major injuries. Yeah, there weren't, there really weren't very many, which was good. On some airplanes with the dual occupancy, they actually had a splitter down the middle, but it adds so much weight to the slide that they avoided doing it on some airplanes. Just don't do it. Yes. Duh. Yes. Anyway. Well, see, this is how the DC-10 got away with having fewer doors than most wide-body airplanes. Oh, that's dumb. You because can get were... two people on a slide. Exactly. Yeah, and they can freaking hurt each other by hurling themselves into each other going down the slide. Yes. Exactly. So, there's your lesson on why today's slides are one person wide. Yeah. I will read the probable cause now. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the improper engagement of the latching mechanism for the aft bulk cargo compartment door during the preparation of the airplane for flight. The design characteristics of the door latching mechanism permitted the door to be apparently closed when, in fact, the latches were not fully engaged and the latch lock pins were not in place. Ha <laughs> ha. And now I'm going to read the 
recommendation. Oh, okay. The recommendation. The the one. Let me guess. There it has one. something to do with changing the way that the cargo door is designed. As a result of the investigation of this accident, the Safety Board on July 6th of 1972 issued two recommendations directed to the administration of the Federal Aviation Administration. Copy of the recommendations are below. So, let's read these verbatim because they're pretty simple. The safety recommendations read, require a modification to the DC-10 cargo door locking system to make it physically impossible to position the external locking handle and vent door to their normal door locked position unless the locking pins are fully engaged and to require the installation of relief vents between the cabin and the aft cargo compartment to minimize the pressure loading on the cabin flooring in the event of sudden depressurization of the cargo compartment. Two really important, very self-explanatory things when it comes to this incident. Ta-da! Needless to say, incredibly important, and it turns out way more important than they thought. So now we're going to take a break, and then we're going to blow your mind. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now, I get to blow your mind. I'm ready to have my mind blown. Excellent. Because now we're going to talk about Turkish Airlines Flight 981. You all thought we were going to cut you off then? Nah. Nah, you probably looked at your timestamp when you were like, wait, but you're like finished and we're breaking? What? Oh, there's so much more. And then you also probably looked at the title and went, wait. Yeah. Okay, so more than half of you probably already knew what was going on. Yeah. but, (laughs) But let's be honest, I just really wanted to have fun with this, so... This happened on March the 3rd of 1974. Two years later. This was also a DC-1010. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my god, this is starting. Things are about to get so much worse than they already were. Oh god. This plane had the tail number of Tango Charlie-Juliet Alpha Victor. This was a Turkish Airlines flight from Istanbul to Paris or Lee Airport to London. The captain for the flight was Nejat Berkoz. He was 44 years old. He had 7,003 hours total, and he had 438 hours on the type. The first officer was Oral Ulusman. He was 38 years old. He had 5,589 hours total, of which 628 were on the type. The flight engineer was Erhan Ozer. He was 37 years old, 2,113 hours total under his belt, and 775 hours on the type. Now, what's interesting about this is, I don't know if you caught those hours, but they had descending hours total of hours, like like literal hours total flying, but ascending hours in experience on the type. Yeah. So the flight engineer was actually most experienced on this airplane. The flight to Orly was uneventful, and the flight arrived at 11.02 a.m. local time in Paris. 50 of the 167 passengers on board disembarked. The airplane took on 10,350 liters of fuel at Orly. The airplane is normally scheduled to be on the ground for one hour at Orly, but due to passengers from British Airways and Air France, it didn't really elaborate on that. It just said due to passengers from British Airways and Air France that took time to get to the gate and board, The flight was on the ground for one and a half hours, so an extra half an hour. In all, 216 passengers boarded for a total of 334. Holy shit. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's not a good thing. No, it doesn't sound like... I don't even remember hearing that a DC-10 can carry that many people. Oh, it can. It can carry, actually, more than that. There were 12 crew also on board the flight. It's a lot of crew. Mm-hmm. The flight pushed back and contacted departure at 11.11 a.m. and 30 seconds. At 11.24 a.m., Orly Ground cleared the flight ta- to taxi to runway 08. At 11.28 a.m. and 40 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight clearance to line up on the runway for takeoff and were given instructions to climb to 4,000 feet. Now, this is all kind of weird, but we're kind of talking about a different time here. They were given some instructions before they were ever cleared to take off. Yeah, that stopped happening. Yeah, there's some reasons for that. We've talked about that in other episodes. Tenerife. Tenerife. Tenerife, specifically. 
which actually comes up will again. come up again. <laughs> oh, that's actually, not good. No, okay, not good. The flight was cleared for takeoff and departed orderly at 11:30 a.m. and 30 seconds. At 11:34 a.m., so four minutes later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to 6,000 feet. At 11:35 a.m., the flight reported being at 6,000 feet. The control was then handed off to the North Area Control Center, so just one of the handling uh, departure centers. Once contact was made, the flight was cleared to flight level 230, or 23,000 feet. At 11.36 a.m. and 35 seconds, the air traffic controller requested that the flight turn left to Montidier. Just a point. A waypoint, yeah. At 11.37 a.m., the flight reached 7,000 feet. The plane made the turn, which leveled out at... 345 degrees. At 11.38 a.m., the flight was passing through 9,000 feet, and the flight was traveling at 300 knots. Three to four seconds before 11.40 a.m., a loud bang is heard. Uh Uh-oh. Bet you can guess what that was. Oh, yeah. The first officer stated, quote, The fuselage had a burst, end quote, and an oral warning began sounding in the cockpit. The number two engine began powering back almost immediately, which sent the airplane into a left turn of 9 degrees, and the nose began falling to negative 20 degrees, causing speed to increase rapidly. At 11.40 a.m. and 13 seconds, the air traffic controller heard a confused transmission from the flight, including warnings and Turkish language being spoken, so they could hear the warnings in the cockpit and everything going off. There was just a hot mic situation going on, for sure. A mic mic button was being pressed somewhere, and air traffic control was hearing... Everything. How high up were they? Uh, they were crossing through nine thousand feet. Okay. They were well, they were almost they were a little above nine thousand feet at the time because it was about two minutes later. An overspeed warning then began sounding in the cockpit because they were gaining speed rapidly as they were descending. Right. The flight then disappeared from the air traffic controller's radar scope, the one that was handling them. Uh oh. Moments later, there was other air traffic controllers in the area that had the radar had them on their radar. Right. Moments later, those radars, the point for the airplane, broke into two separate pieces. Oh, no. One part remaining stationary for about two to three minutes on radar, while the rest continued to travel in a left curving path from heading 350 to 280. At 11.41 a.m. and 6 seconds, the last confused transmission was heard and continued until 11.41 and 13 seconds, so about seven seconds. At 11.41 a.m. 50 seconds, the air traffic controller made repeated calls to the flight with no reply. The airplane then impacted the ground 77 seconds after the loud bang was heard, so a little over a minute. Mind you, they fell way fast. The aircraft impacted in the forest of Ermunenville with no fire, just a heavy, heavy impact. The accident was 37 kilometers northeast of Paris, and the aircraft impacted at 430 knots, which is way above any normal speed. All on board perished, becoming the worst air disaster in history at the time until Tenerife, some years later. But it remained the worst single aircraft accident for many more years until another accident also overtook that. Which was Japan Airlines Flight 123, which we have not yet covered. I think it's on our schedule, though. It is. Excellent. So, horrible situation. Six passengers, however, were found 15 kilometers away from the main wreckage site, as they had fallen from the plane during the original loud bang. No way! Holy s***! Wait a minute, you're telling me... No, they're dead. Oh. <laughs> they were dead. Okay, well, that that kind of takes a little bit of the cringe out of remember it. Remember the all-on-board perished? They were included. Oh, well, hello. Sorry. There were six of the all-on-board. I wasn't paying attention. Still, still, having people fall out of the airplane, that means, first of all, they didn't fix the first problem, and second of all, they didn't fix the second problem either. Hit the head on the nail, why don't you? <laughs> okay, We're well, going to get into that. Oddly enough, this investigation was not performed by the BEA in France. Mm-mm. Actually, the French Minister for Transportation appointed a special commission of inquiry so that they roped in the U.S. more than usual, given that it was an American-made plane. Well, yep. yeah. Both black boxes were surprisingly recovered, given that the plane was, um... Destroyed. Smashed too many pieces. Yeah. Vaporized. Basically. And once again, there was a secondary wreckage site that consisted of the two missing rows of seats, the body strapped in, and pieces of the fuselage. When the NTSB representative Chuck Miller, who had worked on 
American Airlines Flight 96 showed up. He immediately recognized the fuselage pieces as the aft cargo door and had severe deja vu and was very, very angry. Oh, well, yeah. But this time it was so much worse. So much worse. At an altitude of 12,000 feet, the door blew. Yeah, so there you go. They were at 12,000 feet. It didn't say that specifically in the story. It only called out the 9,000 foot mark, which is about two minutes before. So, yeah, 12,000. I think I don't remember if it said that in the report or the air disasters episode. One That's of fine. the two. At twelve thousand feet, the door blew. Yep. that makes more sense. Turns out the pressure differential here would have been four point seven to five point two psi, almost exactly the same as flight ninety six. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because the other one was at about eleven thousand some odd yeah, feet, so yeah, they were yeah. pretty, really, really close in range. And the only thing that would really change that is the outside pressure. Yep. Yeah. All other records showed everything the same as American Airlines Flight 96, in fact. Same region of failure, everything. And also in line with the last time this happened, investigators could not determine why exactly the door didn't close all the way, though they did provide the following potential reasons. Quote, Either the control switch was maintained in an active position for too short a time, parentheses, the modification contained in Service Bulletin 52-44 had not yet been applied to this plane, so that a visual light indicator showing that the shaft had reached the end of its travel was not available to the operator. Or the extension of the actuator shaft stopped too soon because of A, the slip of its torque limiter, B, the normal operation of the thermal protection trip device of the electric mortar, or C, accidental cutoff of the electrical power supply. The electrical motor in question for the actuator was never found. Oh. So proving anything was impossible. Yeah. So point is, door didn't latch. Can't determine why. It just didn't. There were a couple of differences in the exact method of failure, though. McDonnell Douglas had issued a service bulletin. Note, this is different than an airworthiness directive, which requires action. This is more of a strongly worded... You should do Suggestion. this. It's like when your car gets a something recalled on it, yeah. right? They're like, you should replace this, but there's no requirement for you yeah. to do so. Exactly. So <laughs> Mc- McDonnell Douglas issued a service bulletin, not an airworthiness directive, and it suggested a couple of implementations. A peephole was to be added so that cargo handlers could see if the locking mechanism was in place. Warning signs were to be added. The, and the locking pin lengths should be increased, and a plate was to be added that wouldn't allow the lever to go down if the door wasn't latched properly. Some of these were implemented on the Turkish Airlines plane. But only some. It did have the people, but the cargo handlers didn't know what it was for. So they didn't use it. Well. The warning signs were added, but the cargo handler who closed the lever spoke three languages, and English was not one of them, and the warning signs were only in English. Bruh, my dude, why, why? The plate was not installed yet. Which is probably the biggest thing that kept that from yes. being prevented. Now let's talk about the lengthening of the locking pins. Shims were installed for some reason that I couldn't really determine from the report. That made it so that the warning light in the cockpit would turn off even though the locking pins were not fully in the locking pin slot. Never mind that it's supposed to go off until the end of the locking pin is past the slot. This is kind of hard to show verbally, so there's a diagram on our website if you're still confused by that. So rather than lengthening the pin... To they be the put right in thing. shims so that... <laughs> that is just, so stupid! They basically I, circumvented the problem. I reread this entire section multiple times, and I can't figure out what the heck was going on. So I'm sorry. I usually try to do my due diligence. I don't I got think nothing. they knew what was going on. <laughs> no. It's like they didn't know why they needed to lengthen the pin. So instead of getting new pins and installing them, they just like, put in shims. We just gotta get the well, light to and shut I don't, off. I don't know if the pins were lengthened. Like, the... The whole thing was really unclear. Okay. Point is, the light was off. And it shouldn't have been. Right, because the door was not locked. So, those are the few differences from Flight 96. Those are the few differences in terms of the door itself. Now, why did this go so much more poorly than Flight 96? I feel like they just didn't know how to recover it. Mm. Um, It's actually kind of a lot more obvious of an answer. It has to do with how many people were on board. 
Yep. Oh, because it was a heavier flight. Because the floor had more weight on it. So people actually, like, oh. It severed the cables. Yeah, so there was no control. American Airlines Flight 96 had 64 people in the cabin putting pressure on the floor with their weight. Turkish Airlines had 343. Yeah, I could see how that big of a a difference could be a problem. Mm -hmm. So So there were pressure vents, pressure relief vents, but they were too small. Mm. So that rush of air wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So when the few vents that were installed weren't enough to relieve the pressure difference between the cabin and cargo hold, the floor failed worse because there was more weight on it, severing more cables than Flight 96, and they had no control to land. Not like, oh, we can kind of control. No, they had nothing. Nothing. So they just became a giant paperweight. Yep. That's great. Yeah. So let's go into findings. So they had quite a few, actually, but I have narrowed this down significantly because there's only a handful that really apply. So they found that in regards to the aft cargo door on the left-hand side, a service bulletin, 52-37, specifying the installation of a support plate designed to prevent forced closing of the locking handle and the vent door in the case of incomplete engagement of the latching system had not been applied to the aircraft before delivery, and this oversight had not been detected at the time of delivery. Hmm. So the airplane was delivered that way Oh, well. to Turkish Airlines. It was found, however, that work on the application of this modification had begun on the lock tube, where chamfering had been roughly carried out. So the point is that they had, literally, like, the work had begun to put that plate in. Like, like there were signs that they were going to do it, and they never did. And it was never caught. It was found that while the aircraft was in service, a modification, direct access to the drive mechanism, had been carried out in a way which did not comply with the service bulletin. That would probably be the spacers. Yeah. They found that the adjustment of the lock pins and the lock limit warning switch were incorrect. The spacers. Found that the striker of the unlock limit switch had two shims of Douglas Origin, surmounted by a shim with no reference, and of a quality not too aeronautical standards. So the shims were put in, and they were just something. See, it really just sounds like no one knows what I what the heck is going on. Right. Yeah. Like Somebody they, just did it to turn the light off. Right. That's pretty much it. They were like, the light's not turning off. Like, we can't take off without the light off. And I eventually someone that fits. was like, stick it in there. Stick it in there. And they're like, okay, we're going to go. Like, the light turns off now. There's a reason the light is on. <laughs> yeah. I really recommend that you guys go look at the diagrams of this that are on the website, because it makes so much more sense, and there's only so much we can do verbally. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the diagram makes it... You can see the shims. You're like, why the heck are those there? We don't know. Right. So all that was in regards to the cargo door. Now, the drop of pressure in the cargo compartment caused an immediate pressure differential, which was sufficient to cause the disruption of the floor structure and the consequent ejection of six passengers, their cabin seats, and various pieces of wreckage. That said, they found that the, def- the deformation and disruption of the floor led to serious impairment of the controls of the number two engine and of flight controls of which the cables run under this part of the aircraft structure, and the damage was such that it was impossible for the crew to regain control of the aircraft. They also found that because of the design of the mechanism as a whole, the incomplete application of a modification SB5237 absence of support plate specified and the adjustments found on the measurement to be incorrect, the lock pins and the striker, it was possible for the lock door handle to be pulled down without the use of any abnormal force and for the flight deck visual warning light to be switched off. So it did not take 120 pounds of force to close that lever this not time? Not this one, because they said there was no problem. So Yikes. That, yep. that's, that's a pretty big thing. So that's really all they had for findings on this one. But then there's some recommendations. Causes of the accident. Mm-hmm, it's a little long. A little? (laughs) It might be the longest one we've ever had. Okay. The accident was the result of the ejection in flight of the aft cargo door on the left-hand side. The sudden depressurization which followed led to the disruption of the floor structure, causing six passengers and parts of the aircraft to be ejected, rendering number two engine inoperative and impairing the flight control tail surfaces so that it was impossible for the crew to regain control of the aircraft. So that is what happened now. The underlying, the underlying factor in the sequence of events leading to the accident was the incorrect engagement of the door latching mechanism before takeoff. 
the characteristics of the design of the mechanism made it possible for the vent door to be apparently closed and the cargo door apparently locked, when in fact the latches were not fully closed and the lock pins were not in place. It should be noted, however, that a viewport was provided so that there would be a visual check of the engagement of the lock pins. This defective closing of the door resulted from a combination of factors. In application of Service Bulletin 5237, incorrect modifications and adjustments which led in particular to insufficient protrusion of the lock pins and to the switching off of the flight deck visual warning light before the door was locked, and the circumstances of the closure of the door during the stop at Orly, and in particular the absence of any visual indication through the viewport to verify that the lock pins were effectively engaged. Although at the time of the accident, inspection was rendered difficult by the inadequate diameter of the viewport, so that peephole was too small. Yeah, it was probably like that big. And you can't see much through yeah, that. Yeah, like, why the heck would you do that? Yeah. Just... Finally, although there was an apparent redundancy of the flight control systems, the fact that the pressure relief vents between the cargo compartment and the passenger cabin were inadequate, and that all the flight control cables were routed beneath the floor, placed the aircraft in grave danger in the case of any sudden depressurization causing substantial damage to that part of the structure. All these risks had already become evident 19 months earlier at the time of the Windsor accident, but no efficacious corrective acts action had followed so they they were they were so audacious that they put the windsor incident into their probable cause i would have been pissed if i was them i mean yes because <laughs> it happened again like the exact same thing happened and it caused, it's just different slightly slightly different like execution and it caused right? the worst accident in history time, in history and quite frankly i mean this wasn't a by any means, a small worst accident in history. Because we've talked about some of the past that were like, this was the worst at the time in history, but they were small. They were less than 100 people. Right. Because we're talking about early in history. This is was not... Was a big deal. This is not small. Even to today's standards, this would be huge. We're talking about both of the Maxes <laughs> that crashed. I mean... The equivalent, yeah. The equivalent. This was the second one that had the problem already, and it killed as many people in one crash. It's crazy. So, let's talk about some recommendations, and we'll get a little bit further into this. So, they recommended, in relation to the NTSB recommendation A-72-97, relating to the modification of the cargo door locking system to make it impossible to position the locking handle and vent door to their normal door locked position unless the lock pins are fully engaged. Obviously, needs to happen. Also, in, reg in regards to that, the recommendation A-92-98, relating to the means of minimizing the effect on the flooring in the event of sudden depressurization of the cargo compartments, that they, overall, they wanted to make sure that both of these were addressed once more. Right. So, bigger things came from this. They obviously made the vents bigger. They're also standard on all airliners now, so that the vents don't cause the floor to collapse anymore. That is just not a thing. That won't happen again. So, Brendan is joining us. For a moment, and then I will he continue is home here. And covered in snow. We are, we are going to, um, we're we're close to the the closing of this. All right, start from the beginning, please. Okay, I'll, <laughs> we'll start all over. All right. So, so what today, are we covering today? Today Nick? we are covering a man. <laughs> uh, this was the cargo door. Yeah, I told him earlier. Oh, okay. Get rid of the door. Put in a net. <laughs> so actually, this is a kind of a funny story. This was the first thing that I read in one of the in the flight ninety six report. There is a cargo net, and they ran a test to see if that would hold any form of pressure. And right around five psi, that also fails. Is that oh, where the door fails? Yes. Huh. So yes, there was a cargo safety net. It didn't do anything because it would fail at about the same time during the tests. So some of the things that changed, yes. Yeah, so they they the vents. In the floor system, they made them bigger. Because there weren't any for American. They put some in, but they were too small to handle the pressure difference, and it still collapsed the floor in Turkish. And so they put in, they, they recommended, and eventually they did, put in bigger vents to allow the pressure differential to happen fast and prevent the floor from collapsing. Right. And this is also standard in all airplanes. The other thing is with the cargo door... The thing that just should have happened all along is the cargo door was just completely redesigned. And this just doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> the cargo door doesn't have this problem. It didn't have to be modified. No. None of those things. It was just... Right. <laughs> it just didn't have the problem. Yeah. It was redesigned. 
So they recommended alongside the above measures, the fact remains that the case of this airplane, the Turkish airplane, was shown that the necessary redundancy of the flight controls could be inadequate when the routing of the system as a whole was concentrated to points where structural damage could occur. Common theme in the DC-10. Yeah. Very common theme in the DC-10, just like UA-232. Everything suddenly got routed through one point. Turns out that one point is where destruction happens. And everything just stops working. Yes. So in this case, it was the flight controls for the rear of the airplane, the tail plane, the whole tail plane, and then the engine, number two engine. All these were hydraulically driven, correct? Uh, They were all cables, actually. Oh. Which, when the cable breaks, uh, turns out. So in American Airlines, the floor collapsed and it put pressure on the cables. The cables did not sever, but it made it very hard for them to move the cables. So the elevator was very sluggish, Mm. and they had to put full back pressure to get the airplane to flare. And the number two engine is also controlled through there. And that, the engines in both cases, almost immediately went all the way to idle on their own. Gotcha. Because of this. The commission recommends that the training of personnel responsible for operating the cargo doors or checking their closure should be organized in accordance with a detailed program established by agreement between the manufacturer of the aircraft and approved by the official services. So this one's a little bit hairy because it's really hard to talk about, like, getting the manufacturer involved directly with the people that use the cargo doors. Right. Like, they don't even get into that directly involved with the pilots, usually. <laughs> they do a little bit, but that's it's kind of a hairy thing. So it's more to the effect, what they're really trying to get at here is just better training for those cargo right. handlers. Where the cargo handlers that use those doors really know what the risks are of not... Making, using every, having the door be locked all the way. Well, yeah, and not using all the resources available. The little window and the warnings and the lights and all these things that are supposed to help them. They just didn't know. They didn't right. know how to use any of that. Nobody ever trained them to. They just assumed that the latch is shut, the door is locked. And it wasn't. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not a fair... You know, it's not fair to say that that would be wrong, because that's what's supposed to happen. But it didn't. Right. And there were backups for that. The commission recommends that the mandatory procedure for airworthiness directives, whatever the financial recur- repercussions, should be selected whenever safety could be at risk. So, don't cut corners. Don't cut corners for money. That yeah. Above all else, that was probably the most infuriating thing about the Turkish incident, is that there were several points along the way where it was evident that both Douglas and Turkish Airlines had cut corners for money. Even knowing what happened to the American Airlines flight, and even having all the airworthiness directives and the uh, the service bulletins and all these things, even knowing all those things, they were cutting corners for the sake of cost over the safety, and it ended up being the worst thing that could have happened. Lastly, the commission recommends that a study should be made of the measures required to take account of the new problems raised by the large capacity of the aircraft. So this was interesting to me. Literally, they raised the proposition about, well, the bigger we make airplanes, because at the time, we're talking about one of the biggest airplanes that existed, the the bigger we make the airplanes, the more people they hold, the more risk there is of things going wrong. Well, obviously, that got really questioned when Tenerife came around. We didn't care. We built something called the A380. Please refer to literally the last episode. Yeah. There's a lot of people on the A380. But the A380s had a really good safety record overall, so... Can't really say that it's been a problem to put more people on an airplane. We just have to do it right. So, I thought it was interesting that they brought that up anyways, because it's like, yes, okay. At the time, when maybe the airplanes were being rushed into service, yeah, it was kind of a problem. That was a big safety risk for that many people on an airplane. But along the way, it's gotten so much better. Now we have very, very safe wide bodies in mass numbers. True that. Yeah. So that's most of it. I mean, that's really... This This was really pinnacle, though, because this was ultimately the very first issue with the DC-10 that was very fatal. And it was also... It just... It earned the DC-10 a very bad rap. It, it was bad on the DC-10, and then the DC-10 proceeded to get worse when, it found out, when they found out about, like, UA-232 and a couple other small problems. But... Overall, actually, the DC-10, so as much as we bash on the DC-10, because, yes, 
it had a lot of problems and very serious ones that killed a lot of people. But overall, actually, the DC-10 has no worse safety record than most airliners that have existed in history. It's actually about right on par because, for example, there's a lot of them still operating today with cargo airlines. FedEx operated them as the MD-10, though those are going to be phased out very rapidly here soon. And, you know, cargo airlines around the world relied on the DC-10 for years. And some passenger airlines relied on them until about a decade ago. So they were they were still workhorse airplanes. There was a lot of them built, and they were they were pretty hefty airplanes once they were, you know, modified right. and safe. <laughs> they see. just had a lot of flaws. In the beginning. Once they there were a out. lot of redundancies to make sure that an entire system would go offline right if something was severed right so <laughs> it was rushed into service it had a serious problem with a single system that caused some fatalities they some. fixed the problem and it ended up being a safer airplane a much safer airplane sounds, does this sound really familiar sounds familiar here huh huh <clears throat> <clears throat> maxwell <clears throat> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> So, yeah, there was a lawsuit against Douglas and against McDonald Turkish. McDonald Douglas. Yes, McDonald Douglas, because they had eventually Doug changed. for short. Doug, yeah. <laughs> um, the lawsuit Mac was Doug. filed Mac by the families of the victims of Turkish Airlines Flight 90, 981. Yes. So, obviously, it was about the many problems they didn't fix that they were supposed to. Right. And negligence. The plaintiffs, so the legal team for the... Families, as well as journalists, then had access to all of the documents regarding the development of the DC-10 for use in the lawsuit. Along with this, someone discovered a memo from Don Applegate, the director of product engineering from Convair, who had built the cargo door for Douglas, for McDonnell Douglas. This memo became known as the Applegate Memo, and it pre-warned all of this before American Airlines Flight 96. Well... Which is why there was actually... You might remember, there was a service bulletin. Right. They knew! Applegate had warned McDonnell Douglas that it was a matter of time before a disaster happened with the door. Which is really nuts. And so, McDonnell Douglas and Turkish worked really hard to try to defend themselves, using many different defenses. And it proved that none of them were going to work. And the memo said, and this is as much as I could quote from the Air Disasters episode, verbally quoting, The airplane demonstrated an inherent susceptibility to catastrophic failure when exposed to explosive decompression of the cargo compartment. Yep. That's a pretty serious warning. It, this memo was written weeks, just weeks, before Flight 96. Yeah, Bill, pretend you didn't read that. Let's get those airplanes shipped out. Let's go. Uh, basically. Most infuriating would be... Knowing you're right. Knowing <laughs> like, you're right and no one's listening and to And having you. said it out loud to everyone in the company. This sole document became the basis of the lawsuit and it led to McDonnell Douglas settling with the families for a total of $80 million in damages. Holy crap. Turkish Airlines contributed another $18 million. Uh, both did it through their insurance companies because they didn't have the money to do it on their own. I mean, $80 million, you said? $80 million from Big Back Dallas. in what year was this? It's the equivalent of $425 million the two of them <laughs> gave to the families. FYI. In today's money. To be fair, I'd want to be compensated. Like, you knew this was a problem and you didn't fix it. Exactly. Yep. You knew it was a problem and you should have just redesigned the door. I think what's, worse, what's worse is no offense to them, but they, they tried too hard to defend themselves when they just knew they were wrong. And it just made them look worse. It well, did. So eventually they did the settlement, but that was after they fought so hard. They were like, and they just realized they weren't getting anywhere because they'd already written themselves literally into a corner. They should have put out an airworthiness directive. Which the FAA did after this, by right. the way. Yes. But it should have been a thing after the issue with Flight 96 because they were very lucky that nothing got severed mm-hmm. right it, it got compressed and some stuff wasn't working some stuff i think got severed yeah yeah like the the rudder cable probably got severed that probably maybe the elevator which is probably why the airplane fell so it's but when that happened on flight 96 they should have put out an airworthiness yep. directive that said you need to fix your cargo doors so that this does not happen in future areas not just a safe, safety directive mm-hmm. and Yes, they had to pay out the settlement, but that wasn't their only financial loss. McDonnell Douglas did 
sell fewer planes than they had hoped and expected to. And eventually, they had no choice but to be sold to Boeing. Boeing. So, and all that fun. That is... American Airlines 96 and Turkish Airways 9... Airlines. Airlines 981. There you go. There we go. Nice. Thanks so much for listening, friends, and Brendan for being here for the very, 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 very last part of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> That's where you get paid the big bucks. Yes. <laughs> or something. Thanks to all our patrons and everyone who's recommending episodes. Check out the listener episodes on the website. And also remember, April is rainy day episodes. So, Yeah. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, friends, and we'll catch you next time. Keep, Keep your speed, speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.